The Gerontological Society of America, meaningful lives as we age. Welcome to this GSA Momentum Discussion Podcast episode, addressing brain health in adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Momentum discussions highlight topics experiencing great momentum in the field of gerontology. We're grateful to AZI for their support of the new GSA publication, Addressing Brain Health in Adults with Intellectual Disabilities and Developmental Disabilities, a companion to the care toolkit for primary care providers and this podcast episode. My name is Jen Pettis, and I'm the Director of Strategic Alliances at the Gerontological Society of America, and I'm delighted to serve as the host for today's Momentum Discussion podcast episode. Joining me today for this podcast episode is Lisa Combs. Lisa is a service and support advisor with the Ohio Association of County Boards of Developmental Disabilities, or OACB, and a member of our expert review panel for the new GSA Companion to the Care Toolkit. We are recording this episode of our Momentum Discussion podcast in the podcast booth at GSA 2023 in Tampa, Florida. We are delighted to have OACB as a collaborating organization on the new Companion to the Care Toolkit, along with the National Task Group on Intellectual Disabilities and Dementia Care Practices and the Ohio Council for Cognitive Health. Lisa, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to participate in GSA's annual scientific meeting here in Tampa and for sharing your insights around kickstarting brain health conversations with adults who have intellectual and developmental disabilities. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. Certain groups of individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities develop dementia at rates similar to older adults in the general population. However, adults with certain conditions, such as Down syndrome, develop Alzheimer's disease at greater rates. Can you share some insights into brain health disparities in this population? So some of the findings are certainly that sometimes it comes in the 30s for people that are in the years of their 30 years old, for people with Down syndrome, sometimes 40s, 50s, 60s. So not only is it very prevalent, but it comes early, much earlier onset. And some of the numbers that we've talked about is like 2% of people with Down syndrome develop in the 30s, and then 10 to 15% in their 40s, 20 to 50% in their 50s, and then in the 60s, um, that's 60 to 90%. So it's a pretty strong, obvious, you know, connection there. As far as other people, there's lots of developmental disabilities and intellectual disabilities, and we don't see those same numbers at all. We see very similar numbers to the typical community, aging community. But we will say that probably we don't, we may or may not really know those numbers. People with intellectual and developmental disabilities are living longer than they ever have. And we really, 20 years ago, didn't have as many people in their 60s and 70s. And some of our forecasts right now are showing that we're going to have twice as many people with intellectual disabilities in 2030 than we had in 2002. Really interesting information and insights. And we know that you have the boots on the ground experience working in this community, and that's why your insights are so valuable to share things like unique challenges that we need to address to improve brain health and early detection of dementia for individuals in this community and and with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Yeah, my background, I was a caseworker. We call them um, service and support advisors in Ohio for about 20 years and and worked in that kind of system. And then 
I actually also have a 25-year-old son with developmental disabilities living at home with me. And just recently, I've gotten involved at the state level supporting those caseworkers across. So that is my, that is my love is, you know, making, you know, helping caseworkers and people with disabilities, you know, have great relationships and, and thrive. So that's my perspective. And when I think of the kind of challenges that we really see more in with diagnosing and early detection of brain health issues, you know, I think the number one thing that I, I worry about, and I've, I've certainly seen it, not personally, but through some of the clients that I worked with in the past, was that idea that people's aging, as they develop symptoms of aging, very often they're not recognized as part of the aging process, let alone dementia or Alzheimer's, because doctors, you know, they just assume it has to do with the disability. They may, they often don't know the person that well. They might change doctors often and they, you know, don't have the time to really understand that this is something different than, you know, somebody always has needed help getting dressed. And now all of a sudden they come in and they say, no, but like he can't do anything. And from a doctor's perspective, what's the difference? So I think that idea that they attribute most things to the diagnosis of the disability is probably one of the worst things. And then, of course, similar groups have those same issues around limited health care. You know, a lot of their care is is maybe done through a family practice person that may or may not know them well, but they also may be being treated in hospitals and urgent cares and things like that where you don't see a longitudinal, you know, relationship between the doctors and them. So, those kind of things are probably our biggest, and just the newness, like I said before, you know, it's new, and I don't think people, they just don't think about aging. And, and I'm going to be honest, I didn't even think about this before until just now, but I think there's that stereotype that people with disabilities are young. Even if their birth date shows that they're 65 or 70, they may look like they're 40, right? Or they may act like they're 40 in some ways, or 20. And so maybe we're just not thinking enough about asking those deeper questions of aging. Yeah. I, I know everybody calls calls my child, you know, oh, he's such a good kid. I'm like, he's 25. He's not a kid anymore. <laughs> For sure. A whole different frame around mm -hmm. really looking at folks individually. Yeah. Really important. So the second step of the care framework is to assess for cognitive impairment. What are some best practices in obtaining baseline functioning for people with ID or DD? I heard you talk about longitudinal assessment. So uh, let's talk about that. Getting to know a person throughout their life is so important. And so getting baseline information from the caregivers and the person that might have the intellectual or developmental disability is vital to find out what were they doing when they were 30 and how what was their most independent time in their life? That would be a really good question. We ask those questions a lot in getting to know families is what's your best the best time of Joe's life. And that tells us a lot of where we're at in relation. Are we in a good time or are we not in a good time? So I know personally that one of the most respected kind of assessments and, and to get some base, good baseline information and start doing it early would be the NTG's uh, early detection and screen for dementia. And that's been made really nice because they, as you go through all the skills and your abilities and your weaknesses, you talk about what what has always been a concern for somebody, what has always been, but now it's even worse. So like I said about the dressing, right? It's always, we've always had to help him with his buttons and the zippers, but we never used to have to help him with, you know, putting it on backwards or putting his arms in. 
There's also the idea that is this a new symptom in the past year and is this something that is not an issue? So I love that tool. And I think in the IDD area, we'd really like to start using that tool sooner. I was at a conference in uh, the spring and we talked about even putting kind of an initial column in there just at the first time we think about it. Somebody's 20 years old, they're 30 years old. Let's just get that in there right now and then we'll have something to build on. So that's certainly one of the more uh, standard things that we like to think about. The other other things when you got to think about the baseline is is definitely who you're talking to. So with the idea of obtaining information from an individual that has the intellectual and developmental disabilities, but at their baseline, they have that significant communication Mm -hmm. or verbal impairments, and perhaps they don't have a caregiver that's been consistent in their life. So how are you able to deal with obtaining that information um, at that time? Well, it's hard for all of us. Um, I think I told you earlier, that's that's one of the biggest struggles in our system for caseworkers and for, you know, anybody is just getting to know those people. So I think the most important thing is to slow down <laughs> and just take some time. It might be one of the very best things. And I know maybe medical professionals don't have that time, but they could potentially you know, even just sitting down and writing your name with somebody or drawing a picture on with them, finding out if they can draw pictures, watching them, finding out from their caregivers if they use any kind of augmentative communication. More and more people these days, my son, for example, he has really unintelligible speech. It's pretty hard, about 50% of what he says you would get. So a lot of people start turning him off. But one of the accommodations that we've made for him is that he actually can text very well and use text-to-speech. So you got to think, nowadays, as people are getting through life, they're getting much better technology. There certainly is communication devices. But also, we have to rely on those people that are with them, even if it hasn't been a long time, and really reach out to them. And you may have to kind of give the, the tool out to a caregiver and ask them to take it home and observe them and watch it and come back. Because People might not even know until they, well, geez, I haven't really paid attention. I just help them do this and that and this and that. So it's going to take a little longer. It's going to take somebody doing a lot more observation, a lot more listening. Certainly a lot of folks that I work with who don't have speech are able to give yes, no's. They can smile. They can tell you no. So there's multiple ways, but it will take a little bit longer and a little more patience. In the third step of the care framework, a clinician evaluates for dementia. And can you share some key tenets of assessment for dementia in an individual with intellectual or developmental disabilities? And I again want to stress that it's so important that the baseline for those individuals is captured and we're looking at longitudinally over time. But what are some other key tenants you might want to share? Yeah, so one of the cool things that's going on in the DD system, the developmental disability system, at least in Ohio, is that we are doing a lot more of helping families plan for the future. And so we're doing more things like asking them to write letters of intent and actually videotaping important days or or times in a person's life. And I think that's going to be really interesting that 
to think about that if a person would have some of that, um, one of our most famous tools that we deal with in our planning is a day in the life where we go through and just talk about what kind of supports does a person get through the day. So I think that those tools might be a really good for professionals that are trying to um, dementia because they can, and we have these plans for years. I mean, we start serving people anywhere from birth to 22, 23 years old, and we keep them until they're 60. So those plans, well, until they even past 60. So there should be some good historical information, especially in the future, because we're doing more of that. Lisa, the final step of the CARE framework is to refer for community resources. What resources are available to assist medical professionals or state aging agencies in creating more support with people with ID and DD in their state? So vital that we all work together on these processes. We have some pretty large systems that support people with intellectual disabilities and developmental disabilities. And I don't think we can do it without each other. I think we need to really make sure there's some great resources on ways. If you look at each state, you can actually go to the National Association of State Directors of Developmental Disabilities. You can click on your state and they will give you the head of the state that serves that. And that will get you to the website. And so it's really important to find out in your state who is that agency that works with that field? And do they have ongoing case management and work? And did they know this person? Did, do they, is there somebody we could talk to from there? Maybe even developing some collaborations. A lot of the state agencies on DD now have medical directors and connecting with them and starting to collaborate with them on how could we get more information across the systems between that would be really helpful. That's something Ohio has been doing. And I'm, when I was getting ready for this session, I was like, well, I got to get our DD medical director together with these people. And I think that's one of the things we'll be doing soon. So that's a big resource. Also, the NTG that we've talked about, the National Task Group on Intellectual Disabilities and Dementia Practices, Ohio has used them hugely. It's been just amazing to have them able to provide as much support as they have. And I am a personal, just huge fan of the program Dementia Friends. That has been something that is just good for everybody. It's just good for the community at large. It's good for everybody. Everybody, it crosses all types of people and just says, how do we live as a community and support other people in our community who might have dementia? How can we act? How do we respond? Even if we don't know, what should we be doing? It's kind of that idea of universal precautions, right? You never know who you're talking to. If they're over the age of 60, let's just be kind. And so I love the dementia friends. And if you don't have that in your state, I would hope that you would look into it. The other one that I really like is the Ohio Council for Cognitive Health. They actually, you can use their website and they will help you create anything for your state. It's not just an Ohio thing. I got on and uh, was playing with it and they, they let you make resource toolkits for your, you know, whoever. Um, and Bonnie Berman, who is um, head of that, she's been super helpful with all of us um, and, and getting together with you guys and everything. So that is a huge, huge thing. And I think the last thing I was going to talk about was a really exciting thing about the GSA Care Toolkit. I've been had the privilege to work with Jen and some other folks from both NTG and Ohio and um, Ohio Council for Cognitive Health. And we are actually right about to uh, roll out a, let's see, a companion 
companion guide for the care toolkit, specifically with intellectual disabilities and developmental disabilities. So that has been just amazing. I think it's going to be great. We're excited to roll it out in Ohio, and I'm sure it's going to be available soon for lots of people. Um, And so I think that will give uh, some medical professionals great ideas to think about. And a lot of the resources that I've named are also going to be in there along with a lot more. So um, I'm just... I'm I'm excited. I think this is a really, like you said, a momentum discussion, right? I think there's a lot of opportunity right now to support those caregivers and the people with dementia. So I'm excited to be part of it. Great. Well, thank you for joining me. This has been a fun discussion, and we are very excited at GSA to be rolling out that companion document in Ohio very soon. And it will be freely available at geron.org slash brainhealth. Uh, where all of our brain health resources are available free and folks are welcome to download them and use them in their practice. So thanks again, Lisa, for joining me for this podcast episode and for joining us here in Tampa at GSA 2023. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research and education to advance innovations in practice and policy. For more information about GSA, visit geron.org, G-E-R-O-N.org.